Support the show by donating at themusicbuds.com. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Music Buds podcast. This is episode number 26, and my name is Henry. This week, I'm honored to be joined by composer Christopher Drake, known for a huge number of acclaimed projects, including the video games Batman Arkham Origins and Injustice, the animated films Batman The Dark Knight Returns, and uh, Hellboy Blood and Iron. And Oh, wow, that's a deep cut. <laughs> yeah, uh, as well as his re- recent work with Kevin Smith on Yoga Hosers and Tusk. Uh, Christopher, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I really have loved your work for a long time, so I really do appreciate you doing thank this. Thank you, Henry. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, uh, how's life? Life is like we were saying off camera a few moments ago. I guess it's as good as it can be. I'm grateful for what I have and good health and, you know, I'm breathing. It looks like you're breathing. Yes, thankfully. So this is good. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what we were saying. It's kind of, that's what's going around. It's like, it's just, it's all right. You know, literally through surviving, you know. Around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I I guess kicking things off, how is it that you got started was uh, as a composer? Was music something you always wanted to do? Uh, How how did it come about? You know, the interesting thing I think about um, being a composer, it's a different art form than being, let's say, like, you know, a you know, a composer that's writing a symphonic work. You know, you think of your classical music and you know, even contemporary composers that work in that medium where or any kind of artist working in music where it's a form of just personal expression, right? It's like, this is what I feel, even if it isn't words, this is about my experience or something that I'm trying to present. Well, as a composer, you're, it's really about storytelling. You're not writing music for you. You're supporting a story. And I love, and my, and so to answer your question, how did I get into it? Yes. I've always loved music. And since I was a kid, uh, you know, when I was four years old, I'm going to age myself. I'm going to reveal my age here. But my, when I was four years old, for Christmas, I got two. I got an LP, a little portable record player, like this Fisher-Price record player. <laughs> and I got two records. One was the Bee Gees Saturday Night Fever. Nice. This is 1977. And then the other one was this little indie movie called Star Wars. And uh, I, I mean, I was like four or five years old when Star Wars came out, and it it totally caught my attention for all the reasons it's caught the whole world's attention. But part of it that I locked onto, and I didn't understand it as a time at the time, was the music, the storytelling, and the music. And John Williams used a technique that goes back to Wagner and, and classical composers that wrote an opera called Leitmotif, which is, you know, it's 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 a piece of music that is designated for a person, place, or thing. When you see the shark in the water, the shark fin in the water, you hear the music. That's, yeah. you know, Jaws. Even if you're in another room, you're like, oh, shit, the, jar- the shark's coming. I learned just from a place of storytelling where this is before, you know, aging myself here, where I think this generation, it's hard to comprehend a time where I didn't have, we didn't have a VCR we didn't have a, a CD or Blu-ray. We didn't have the internet where you could have music or movies on demand. So you had to wait for these things to come out in the theater. So Star Wars came out and uh, you saw it in the theater a couple of times because it usually be in the theater for a year. But in between those times, because we couldn't watch it on TV, the closest thing we had was listening to the soundtrack. And I can hear, you know, not so much in the first film because there isn't an Imperial March, but my God, when Empire Strikes came out, I could just close my eyes without, I had a memory of the movie I had seen, but I would listen to the soundtrack and go, oh, Darth Vader just showed up. Yeah. Oh, and Luke <laughs> just saved the day. And like, you can hear that without a picture, the storytelling without a picture. So anyways, that was my impression as a kid was John Williams, the first thing. And then I started noticing, I had always had an ear for music and I started paying attention to the music, it's really a subliminal art form. A lot of people don't even notice there's music, you know, in films. Um, again, it's there to support psychology and the storytelling of things. But I used to notice certain styles of music. I remember the, the, the after John Williams, before I knew who John Williams was John Williams, I just noticed that style of his, of his writing. 
And I would hear Close Encounters of the Third Kind and go, is that, that sounds like Star Wars or that sounds like Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> and then I started, next few composers that I started making connection to that was, in terms of style, was Goldsmith. And I started, and Jerry's very a chameleon. He's really, you know, not, not taking a, a dig at like Jerry Goldsmith versus John Williams, but John Williams is John Williams. And you can kind of, you always hear, and that's by no means, you know, John Williams is at, you know, 10% is most people's lifetime achievement. Sure. But boy, the, my point being is stylistically, you know, John Williams has these very specific idioms and a language for his music that you can recognize. Jerry has that too, but Jerry will be, is a lot more, can be more avant-garde and experimental. Jerry w would, you know, you go from like Poltergeist, if you listen to Poltergeist, and then you listen to Alien, and then you listen to something like Runaway, which is a synth score, an all synth score, and then Goldsmith, there you listen to Total Recall. So anyways, I, I started hearing a lot of Goldsmith things, the odd time signatures, the weird, like there were just these things I thought were, was cool. So then the last two people that I locked onto was I could recognize before, if my parents were in another room watching a James Bond movie, I knew that music, John Barry and that minor chord structure. I didn't understand it at the time, but I was like, that sounds like James Bond. I yeah. can hear James <laughs> Bond music without even seeing it. I know what it is. And then the last person that really made later on when I was like, in my young teenage years, actually more like 12, 13, there was a, a local UHF station in Phoenix, Arizona called KPHO. And they used to, long story short, they, they were a Fox affiliate before like the Fox channel was a full-time channel. So in, in, in the 90s, Fox just kind of started broadcasting at 6 p.m. to like 10 p.m. But before that, they had to fill up the time so they would rerun Escape from New York, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Oh, yeah. Every other day on Channel 15, UHF Channel 15. And I just heard that music, this synth music and this minimalistic stuff that wasn't specific to action, but was more about moving the pulse. And these are all groove things. You know, you're asking, yeah. like, how to music. These aren't even, like, I couldn't even intellectualize this stuff as a kid. It just was, like, something I was drawn to and I recognized as supporting the story, being part of the storytelling, and also propelling it. So that was my real introduction. And I was a big score nerd. You know, when I was in elementary school, it was one of those secret things where, like, you're going to get your lunch money taken if you start talking, like, junior high, if you start talking about Jerry Goldsmith, Star Trek, the motion picture, like, right. sing on battle music. You're, you're not going to get a date, and you're not – your probably bike is going to be stolen. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the – now, now in the 21st century, yeah, like, you know, genre, nerd stuff is, is, is king. There's nothing to be ashamed of. People can fly their, their free – If you flag. don't like it now, you're the, you're the outcast That's almost. Right. That's so. right. That's right. So uh, that being said, it was, it was always kind of this – you know, we kept it in the closet. We didn't really talk about our, our – we, we were movie score nerds. That changed a little bit when I was probably 15 years old and my best friend, Jason's brother, uh, we were hanging out at his house after school and he was like, you guys have to hear this. And he played Eruption by Eddie Van Halen, who rest in peace, just passed away recently. And I heard that and I was like, wait, that's a guitar? That's that you like it. It tweaked all of my interest in sound design and melody and just transgressing genre. And from that point forward, I was like, I'm going to learn how to play guitar. I play like any video. So <laughs> my first instrument, my mom bought me like a, like a cheesy Yamaha keyboard from the Montgomery wards. <laughs> you know, Sorry, like yeah, yeah. And I learned how to play all by ear. I was, I'm completely self-taught later on. I went to school to learn the fundamentals and music theory and learn how to, you know, read music and orchestrate and stuff. But I never, that was like in my late 20s, you know, like I never went to school for the stuff. I just had an ear for it. And, uh, you know, and, and it, you learn by doing, you know, so I just would start playing these instruments and, and by ear do takedowns. Like the first piece of music I learned how to play was Axel F from uh, Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was the first thing I learned how to play that and like, the James, the, the, uh, Mission Impossible theme 
Mm. I learned how to play that. I learned how to play the beginning of Toccata. So I just did all this stuff by ear because, again, this is before the internet. Like, I could have just, like, pull up tab or, like, pull up sheet music. You know, you'd yeah. have to drive downtown to the, to the music store and buy stuff. So I just tried to improvise. But a lot of my learning just came by, from doing, you know, just, like, nobody taught me. It just, like, well, give me the computer or piano or the, I didn't have a computer back then. Give me a, give me a keyboard or a piano or a guitar. And I just learned just by screwing around and playing incorrectly until finally mm -hmm. I got like real somebody to show me how to do it correctly and better. But I learned by doing that's my whole, that was my whole intro. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like, uh, like the kind of quote unquote unconventional, approach to composing seems to be often seems to get the best results. So, I mean, it's, you know, there's not well, one, I think there's yeah, not one I way think, to do it, but you know, it seems like you ha went down a good path, you know? Well, that, well, you know, that's, you, you hit on something there. And I think, you know, I, I always say this when, you know, if ever I give like talks in front of young composers or stuff like this, and people ask like, what, you know, what advice can you give? And the first thing I always say is there's no rules. There's no rules to art as you were just saying, to music, but to art in general. Mm -hmm. And sometimes doing it wrong is doing it right. At the end of the day, it's like, what's, is that cool? You know, you like, you know, there's, there's, you know, uh, it's music theory, not music law, you know? So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, there's some people that back in the day from a musical theory standpoint, they're like, that's obscene to write in parallel fits. It's like, well, who gives a shit? You know, <laughs> that's, cool. that's like so much film, modern film music is, is done that way now. So yeah, there's no rules, man. It's, it's in, in, I think that's true with filmmaking, with any kind of art, a lot of it. And a lot of times, many, many times, some of the more interesting results you get is from a lack of resources, whether that be financial, budgetary, lack of access to musicians or like we're in a place now where it's hard to get an orchestra because of this pandemic we're in. And so, but because of that, you're put it in a box and you have to use your creativity and th literally think outside the box, as they say, you know? And, uh, and so a lot of times you get groundbreaking shit, you know, when people, you know, have, don't have stuff, but you know, you look at, you know, John Carpenter did it. Those were low budget films, but again, yeah. From score to how he executed it, it's about, it's just about how you can use what you have to maximize. And sometimes in doing that, you create a whole new genre of stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I think that really speaks true because, you know, we're still talking and listening to those scores and, you know, discussing those scores. And so sometimes doing right. things on a micro budget or in an unconventional way, that's what will stand the test of time, uh, you know, in a lot totally. of ways. So. Totally. And, and at worst case, you know, you could look at it and go, uh, you know, you look at the old Star Trek, the old t I'm talking about the TV Star Trek, the original mm. Shatner, and you go, oh, wow, they had no money and, like, that monster's kind of cheesy and the set's made out of cardboard, but it still, it still had a point, you know. It still, it still had uh, an interesting, um, you know, opinion to share in terms of, you know, and, and it's, and look, I guess the point I was trying to say is worst case scenario, even if like years later, people can look at something and go, oh, that had no money. That was made for a buck 50. But it also makes it kind of charming and you go, it, it even gives you a little bit more respect for the people. They're like, that's what they were able to pull off, you know? Yeah. And that's just history. That's the way it's going to be. I mean, we think of what's the most te technically state of the art stuff right now, the Marvel, Star Wars, Disney stuff. Dude, in like 20, 30 years, we're going to like, you know, stuff is going to be holographic. People are going to look at that and go, wow, that's really cheesy looking. The, yeah. the only other thing that's weird, that's kind of a bummer to me, and I'm finding that I'm having, as I get older, I have these old man musings sometimes, is that it's, it's, it's I don't know if the current generation can really, because the technology is like, you know, my son is 25, I have a 25-year-old son. And he's never known life without a computer. He's never known life without Jurassic Park. That's what dinosaurs look like. They're CGI. And it's not like I, I don't want anybody to not have that. But there's, some, there's a sense of awe and magic about seeing the evolution of being like, I remember when dinosaurs were Her Ray Harryhausen, which is he's a brilliant artist and it was stop motion animation. But then seeing the CGI dinosaurs it kind of blows your mind as like wow this is the next thing but it's like there's a whole society um a whole generation of 
film goers now that they just expect everything like TV looks like the Mandalorian. It looks like just TV looks like star Wars now, you know? So yeah. it's like, it's interesting to me to think like, where do we take it or where do we go next? Or, and I think a lot of art and storytelling and filmmaking is really changing also because of the pandemic. Yeah. And I, and I think people's attention spans are evolving. So these are all things that, Ultimately, I'm kind of getting, I'm oh, sorry, the weeds here, but <laughs> bringing it back to music, these are also kind of things that, you know, as a, as a contemporary film composer, I, I don't try to obsess about, but I try to think like, well, what is the, how am I evolving or am I just, you know, repeating this tradition? Like, how can I, how can I move this forward in terms of music and that supports new types of storytelling in the 21st century? Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, uh, that was really long. Oh, you're 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 totally fine. I enjoy, I enjoyed it. I it's it's it I, I it's totally okay. Really, kind of going off that and kind of looking at some of your your projects. Like you know, you've done some of these huge Batman films that are taken from these legendary uh, yeah. st- stories, like The Dark Knight Returns, uh, Under the Red Hood, and I, I think what's so great is which since you've been able to be a part of so many of these is you've kind of become one of the defining like Batman sounds. And I think that's so, that's so cool because, you know, it can be such a great, because those films were partly an introduction for me into that world. And so it really shaped cool. how I, how I viewed it with your music being uh, included. Was it, what was it like working on, on, on films like that? Well, that's really, that's really fun to hear. That's really nice to hear because at the end of the day, man, like Henry, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just, was just a big, I'm the biggest Batman fan in the world. Oh, a yeah. lot of composers, you, you know, I mean, I've, I've had conversations with a lot of composers and I've read interviews again with like Jerry Goldsmith and even John Williams. And the reality is, is, you know, back then it was a studio system and you just got assigned the movie that you're supposed to work on or, you know, a, a friend, you know, you have a friend named George Lucas and he introduces you to Steven Spielberg and, you know, but the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, a lot of composers, they don't, it's not that they don't care. It's not exact, but it's not a, in the subject matter that they're attached to. For example, Goldsmith, and you think of science fiction and fantasy, same thing with John Williams. I mean, right. they both right. have big careers, but you, the things people think about is like Harry Potter, Star Wars, you know, ju- like these big cinematic, you know, fantasy um, science fiction things. And the reality is, is that, I know Jerry was like, you know, I don't really know what the hell's going on in Star Trek. I got to be honest with you. I don't know what the, I don't know what the hell a Klingon is. You know, I'm just trying to write it from a humanistic standpoint. The point being, and I know John Williams is kind of like, you know, this isn't Star Wars isn't exactly a movie I would go out to see myself. But so the point being is that there's a lot of, and even today I have quite a few friends that come from, you know, they kind of fell into the the gig. They're from the rock world, you know, and they just kind of were like, looking for a new way to, you know, to, to keep having a career writing music and somebody liked them as a rock musician and now they're a film composer. Um, but I love this shit. Like, I'm, yeah. I am, I love Batman. I, if you were to tell me when I was like 12 or 13 when I read The Dark Knight Returns, I still remember sitting at one of my friends that we would go to the comic book store. We were waiting for it. And this is before it was trade when it came out. It was at 86. And I remember, uh, all, I remember buying all those comic books. Mm-hmm. I remember buying The Dark Knight Returns, Batman Year One, uh, Arkham Asylum, and waiting for them. And just we, we, my friends would go there after school. We'd walk to the comic book store and then just go kick it at one of our front, one of one of our houses in the living rooms. Just have quiet nerd comic book reading time. And it'd be like we would, you know, then we would talk about it afterwards. Like this, the right. nerdiest book club. But I love this stuff, and uh, I loved Batman the Animated Series. I thought, oh, yeah, I thought it was groundbreaking stylistically. And I remember when it first came on. I was talking about the Fox Network a little while ago. It was on the Fox Network when it was when it was young, ninety whatever that was, ninety two, I think. And Batman the Animated Series originally aired in prime time at seven mm-hmm. like after The Simpsons or something like that. And originally, you know, I'd seen advertisements for it. And by this point, I think I was in high school and I was kind of like, you know, jaded and like, you know, uh, um, you know, a nihil- nihilistic, angry Goth. white guy. 
hills in you know Arizona and just ah, I'm too angry for cartoons. And I remember looking at them and go like, oh look at this cash grab because they're doing the the Tim Burton. I was very cynical. I, then I was like, I was like, well, I, I put it on, and it blew me away. It had this Art Deco style that reminded me of the Max Fleischer um, Superman um, cartoons of the '40s. Have you ever seen those? The Max yeah. Fleischer. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just yeah. they're just beautiful, and the music, dude. Like, oh yeah, I remember hearing it, and it was like, okay, it's it's Danny's doing. It's the it's the Elfman main titles. Okay. But the actual incidental music, the actual score was really amazing. And the great Shirley Walker, I, you know, I just, when I finally, so, you know, to answer your question, I, I fell in love with that stuff in terms of being a fan and being into it. Mm. And uh, then, you know, I had done, I had met Guillermo. Uh, okay, so... I'm, I'm now I'm stirring this into how I got started. So this, all <laughs> no, you're, 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 you're fine. You know, it's like in here. Okay. So it like, it's, it's funny. I'm thinking about how I'm going to present this, but I'm also having a real time realization of how like my life has these weird parallels that all kind the symmetry that lines up. Okay. Hmm. So here's the story. All right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I, I, at some point in the nineties, you know, I was, as I was saying, I was, I was in bands, I was playing guitar and I wanted to, but I always wanted to be a film composer, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know like, and again, this is before the internet. Now you can literally log on and get a masterclass with Hans Zimmer or Danny right. Elfman pick one yeah, yeah. to teach you how to become a film composer. <clears throat> so I didn't know how to get into it. Uh, and, I, but my plan was, I think I would have better odds if I tried to get into animation. And the reason that my, my strategic career entry goal was animation, because at the time I was in my twenties and I was like, younger people are making these cartoons and there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, you know, whether it's, it's, you know, um, Bruce Tim and the Batman stuff or, or whatever. And I thought, there's a low risk threshold for an unknown to maybe pitch for something like that and to get in and working with people that I understand are on the same like level in terms of understanding of genre and, and things that we're into being the same age group. And um, I'm not going to work for Steven Spielberg or, you know, George Lucas as a 22 year old, nobody from Arizona. That's not going to happen. Now that, idea was flawed because I, I soon came to realize it's just as difficult to get into anything and whether it's animation or, or anything as right. hard as it is to do score a Star Wars movie. Yeah. So the point being is that with the animation thing at the time, again, I was living in Arizona and Kevin Smith was doing Clerks the Animated Series. Or this is, the word was on the street that they were going to do an animated series mm. based on Clerks. And I thought to myself, well, shit, that's, I get the same shit that Kevin Smith's into. I get the whole Star Wars, like, we come from, you know, like, he's my, he's speaking for my generation at, at that time. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, why don't I put together, like, a demo? And I know, I, I have a feeling, knowing Kevin Smith's, I don't know Kevin Smith, but I know his humor, I'm a fan of his, that he'll have some reference to, like, a Star Wars joke. So I wrote this orchestral, John Williams-y sounding, like, one-minute piece then I wrote like a weird hip hop piece because I know like Jay and Silent Bob stuff. And mm. what I did was I cut, I, I, I this is, we're talking VHS. Mm. So I recorded off my mom's VCR dialogue from clerks. And then I had like a windows 95, whatever I was using back then. And I cut in the dialogue, the Jay and Silent Bob and some, you know, Randall dialogue over these, these four pieces of music and then I wrote like a thrash metal piece because you know berserker and all that stuff sure so anyways I made my first demo I didn't really realize what I was doing but I was doing it right instinctively I made this demo of five pieces but then it was like okay I'm like cool I have these five pieces of music that I recorded on an eight track but it sounded pretty good it didn't sound it sounded professional I played it to a couple of professional um musicians I knew in Arizona and a guy that had a studio and they said, listen, this sounds legit. This sounds like a professional. This doesn't sound like some kid did it in their, in their basement. I said, okay, cool. Now the question was, well, how the hell do I get Kevin Smith to hear it? How do I, how do I living in Arizona? How do I get my music heard by at the time Disney was, was producing the show. 
And I was like, I was working, I was doing lighting and sound. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, named Mike Wurzik, he owned a, uh, a sound company called uh, Professional Presentation Ser Services, P PPS, yeah. And he was older than me. He's probably like, like at the time was in his mid to late 40s. And I said, I, I'm trying to pitch for this. I have this idea. I want to pitch as a composer for a TV show, but I think you have to have an agent. He said, I'm from New York. I'll be your agent. Just put me on the phone. Like, who do we need to call? I, and so I, I went in. I can't remember how I found the phone number for Walt Disney Studios, the music department. I'll never forget the woman that worked there. Her name was Bambi Moe. And I was like, that's interesting. Hmm. This woman's name is Bambi and works at Disney. Is this yeah. a front? Is this like a burner number? Is this a real number? <laughs> so I, I can't, I, Henry, I can't remember how I got the phone number, but I got the phone number for Walt Disney music um, supervision. And I had my friend Mike call up with his New York, you know, gusto and just like, I'm representing my client, Christopher Drake, and we'd like to submit. And they're like, okay, here's the address. We'd love to hear. <laughs> The music. And we, we hung up the phone. We're like, the shit's that easy? That's all yeah. we had to do? And so by the end of the day, FedEx to Burbank, California, I sent a piece of music and they returned the call saying, the music's really good. We, we've submitted to the, um, you know, the, the filmmakers, Kevin, you know. Uh, I found out it never made it to Kevin and they ended up hiring a guy named Jim Venable. Jim, Jim is a good friend of mine now, but he is the composer for the Powerpuff Girls and, oh, yeah. and he ended up scoring Clerks and then Zach and Mary Megan Parnas, quite a few of Kevin's movies. And uh, th again, the symmetry of this, you know, I, I found out, I remember getting the phone call because I, I kept calling every couple of weeks. Hey, any word calling the, you know, the contact at Disney. And finally they said, oh, yeah, you know what? We, we've cast another composer. And I said, oh, uh, who did you end up going with? They're like, we we're, you know, we hired James Venable from the Powerpuff Girls and remember hanging up my phone in Arizona and being like, Jim Venable. Oh, I curse you. Curse upon you and your house for getting that. Because I was, you know, it was the yeah. closest. So excited that somebody from Hollywood's talking to me. And I thought I lost the gig. So fast forward a couple of years, I, I finally make the move to California in 2000. And I go to my first San Diego Comic-Con. And uh, they have a presentation about Powerpuff Girls, the movie with Jim Venable and the cast there doing the Q&A, you know, the Comic-Con kind of thing. And afterwards, uh, Jim was in the hallway, and I approached him, and I was just like, I introduced myself. And I said, hey, man, yeah, it's, I, I can't wait. I think this is before Clerks even came out. And I said, I, I can't wait to hear the thing. I, I talked to Bambi Moe, and Jim looked at me, and he knew I wasn't bullshit. You know, mm. he was like, wow, you, you, you got... And he said, hey, man, do you have any music on you? And, of course, I had a backpack full of, like, of course. demos, you know? Mm. Right place, right time. You got to be ready. And I gave Jim my CD. And that week after Comic-Con, Jim called me up and he's like, hey, dude, do you want to have lunch? Like, your shit's really good. Like, let's hang out. And I was like, yeah, sure. And then Jim was working on a scary movie, one of those scary movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, he invited me. That was my for first scoring session. I hung, got to hang out on the stage and, and, and hang out with Jim. You know, I – okay, so – I had met Jim and that was my first, you know, I'm talking to, I'm getting in, you know, I'm starting to network. I'm starting to meet people, you know, and Jim was my first guy uh, and really kind of introduced me about how the business works, how he works. And um, again, this is the year two, 2002. Now, as I told you before, Henry, I'm, I'm a big nerd. So I love me comic too. books, <laughs> but I'm a big whore. I mean, I don't know if you can tell, like my, my, Oh yeah. My whole thing is I love classic horror films from the forties in like, I love Bela Lugosi and Frankenstein and uh, Boris Karloff, Frankenstein. Oh, well, I my I think my favorite horror film of all time is the invisible man, the original. So I love it. I do. I do. I'm not going to do it here. Uh, but I do a pretty bitch in Claude Rains impression. I, like, <laughs> okay. I do it, but I have it's, I, I'm not bragging. It's pretty solid. Anyways. Oh, I, I believe you. <laughs> what? So in 2002, there's this guy. I, I moved to Burbank because, again, my from Arizona to Burbank, because, again, I thought, well, that's where all the animation studios are located in Burbank. And I just, a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time. 
And so I wanted to be in an area where I might be able to like go. I, I moved my first apartment was right across the street from Warner Brothers, where ironically that's where I ended up, where my studio is. Locked out of it right now because of COVID, but during normal times we would be talking from Warner Brothers. Um, so I had moved to Burbank, and there's this guy named Bob Burns that lives in Burbank. Now Bob Burns is a very well known historian in science fiction fantasy and horror films. Bob has a museum in his house in Burbank. And I knew about him because he would, he would be in the monster magazines like, you know, Starlog. And uh, he actually even had one of his own Fangorian, had one of his own horror magazines in the, in the sixties. And he was on the sci-fi channel at the time. They used to have like a little um, documentary featurette thing once a week with him about, it was called Bob's basement. And Bob's basement is really his museum. And what Bob has in his museum is the original King Kong from 1930, like the original Willis oh, yeah. Frank Kong armature. He, James Cameron has given him the alien queen head from Aliens. He Jeez. has the full-size alien queen. He's, he has the time machine from George Powell's time machine. So he has Rick Baker. He has the original um, American Werewolf in London is in there. So it is, he has gizmo from Gremlins, like all, it's just, it's just wall to wall, everything, the stuff that dreams are made out of, literally. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. It's, he has lightsabers from, he has Darth Vader's hand that was chopped off at the end of Return of the Jedi, Jeez. Jeez. holding the lightsaber. So, wow. so Bob lives in Burbank and he used to do a Halloween show in his front yard. And what I mean by Halloween show, it was a complete recreation of some famous horror film or science fiction film from the past. For example, he turned his front yard into a cave and had creature from the black lagoon come out of a lagoon. Dang. So this is Hollywood level stuff. Yeah. And the people that worked on, on these Halloween shows were guys before they were, before they had Academy Awards, were guys like Rick Baker and Dennis Murin, who went on to become ILM founded, you know, co-founded ILM and won Academy Awards for Star Wars, Raiders of Lost Ark. You know, these were these are now what we consider to be these men in their sixties back then were these geeky teenagers hanging out with Bob Burns before they won all their Academy Awards. So Bob used to do these um, Halloween shows. He had one. Rick Baker did The Exorcist, where. He had his wife, Kathy, levitating on a bed in the front yard. And, and if you, by the way, if you go to YouTube and Google Bob Burns Halloween, you can see all this stuff. And I, I, I will, yeah. heard, it's interesting. It's amazing stuff. Um, so anyway, so I knew this guy, Bob Burns, lived in my, my hood, my new hood that I moved to in Burbank. And uh, I, this is a long story, but I'm trying to make this as, as <laughs> possible. But I met Bob at a local bookstore called Dark Delicacies, which is a horror bookstore. Yeah. And Bob, Bob had not done one of these horror, uh, one of these Halloween shows in his front. And these were free things that he put on for, for the public. Uh, but they were massive. Uh, they're literally like, a, like building a movie set. Mm -hmm. He hadn't done one for almost a decade, since the 70s. And the last one he did was uh, Alien. He did one based on Alien, 20th Century Fox. Gave them all the props and the costumes from Alien. They built the Nostromo in his front yard. Wow. So that was the last one he did. But it was 2002, and this is right after 9-11. And Bob was kind of talking to his special effects friends, and he was like, you know, I think we should it's, – it's, it, we're in a weird place right now, at, right after the 9-11 attacks. Would it be nice to just do something fun for the community for Halloween and bring people together? Let's do another one of these shows. So – he did based on the thing, not John Carpenter's thing, but the original thing. Right. That was Howard Hawks uh, version. And we built an ice station in his front yard. And I'll never forget the first day. This is now going to tie into my career. This is the beginning okay. of my career. We finally got there. No, no, you're fine. I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm enjoying so it. So my first day I'm at Bob's house. And I'm overwhelmed because I'm also looking at, oh, there's the time machine. Oh, here's King Kong. Oh, there's, you know, we just opened up his garage and this giant octopus tentacle rolls out. It's squid tentacle. I go, what the hell's that? He goes, oh, that's from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's one of the, the squid tentacles that attacks the Nautilus. I'm like, oh, my God. And Bob's like, I want to introduce you to my friend, Greg Nicotero. And I'm like, what? And like, and here's Greg with his long hair walking up the driveway. And I'm a huge Evil Dead fan. And, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. 
and Greg in K and BFX were the guys that did all that stuff. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm talking to Greg and Gutero. Uh, and, and, you know, like all these people started uh, and Greg did all the, the makeup effects for this Halloween show. So we have coming up on Halloween night, we have a VIP night because Bob is kind of a well-known person in the horror genre. So we were going to have a VIP night of this Halloween show of the thing that we're doing in his front yard. And it was invite only, but Henry, it was like, oh, there's Rick Baker. There's John Landis. There's Frank Darabont. There's Guillermo del Toro. There's Rob Zombie. There's like, you know, all these, all my heroes. There's Joe Dante. There's like, you know, everybody came out to see this because it was a, it was a known thing that Bob used to put on these Halloween shows. And so we're walking through because it was kind of like, imagine like, you know, like it's kind of like a, a universal horror Halloween night kind of a thing, like a mm-hmm. maze that was kind of set up. And so you're walking through this ice station. And then at the end of the night, you know, this, the, the, the show itself, the walkthrough is maybe about a five or 10 minute thing. Oh, and I scored it. And so Bob had asked me if, if I could do the music. So I wrote this orchestral score that was like the Dimitri Tiamkin score for the original thing. I left that. That's kind of an important part that ties us together of how <laughs> I, I wrote the, this music for it. I played the theremin on it. It sounded like a 1950s um, soundtrack and the right. actors cued to it. So there's a, the house next door is having kind of a after party where people are mingling and having cocktails and stuff while Bob's house still has the shows running and people are going through maybe 10 at a time. And you can hear my music playing on the other side of the wall. And I was at this after party, just kind of a wallflower staring at like, oh, there's Guillermo del Toro talking to Frank Darabont. This is so cool. Like, a, and I'm not like a, one of these autograph guys that runs up to people and I need my picture taken. Sure. I'm just like stoked being there. And uh, my music started playing on the other side of the wall and Guillermo del Toro stops Frank Darabont in mid-sentence and he goes, do you hear that fucking shit? Listen to that music. <laughs> Listen to that. That's the, that's the fucking shit. And my friend grabs me by, but literally my friend Paul Pershman grabs me by the shirt collar and thrusts me in front of, pushes me in front of Guillermo del Toro and goes, this guy did the music. And Guillermo looked at me with these loving eyes and gave me the biggest bear hug. And he said, we must work together. <laughs> that's I amazing. Like, I was like, right on. Holy shit. Now, you got to realize, this is before Guillermo is Academy Award winning Guillermo del Toro. So this is, the timeline is Guillermo is getting right off of Blade 2 mm. and is about to get into Hellboy. Yeah. And Guillermo had told me, you know, I, as I told you, I, I moved to Burbank, to California, thinking, like, maybe my in is in animation. And Guillermo says, hey, we're doing this cartoon, this fucking cartoon about Hellboy. And I was like... Hey man, like, can I, can I maybe write a sketch of some ideas, some concepts? And so I did the same thing. I learned what I did with Kevin. I, you know, I got in the front door and and the Walt Disney music department took me seriously. So I'm going to do the same thing. Guillermo has my attention. So I'm going to write four pieces of music. And the first thing I did was I kind of wrote my arrangement of Marco Beltrami's Hellboy theme because I knew that Guillermo wanted to use the theme. And I kind of just up-tempoed it a little bit and, and just, you know, kind of just took it in a different direction, but kept the, kept the theme there so you could recognize it. And then I wrote like a horror theme, a suspense theme, and like an action theme. Uh, and, I just, and what I try to do with these demos is like, I was, this ties back to what I was saying earlier, which is storytelling through music. So when my, my concept was, my intention was when Guillermo heard my demo, a, that he would take me seriously, and B, from just the quality of the production that I, that I, could, I could produce, uh, but also hear the storytelling without seeing, without seeing a picture, just closing your eyes and go, oh, there's Harold Hellboy, just like I remember going, there's Darth Vader entered the room. You right. can, you clo- your imagination can almost make a sequence with these pieces of music that's sent to him. And it, right, it resonated, and Guillermo hired me on the spot. I did that. Uh, and I did a, uh, I, I, he had a, um, he had a short that he did when he was in his twenties called Geometria, 
that uh, is is on. He he wanted to rescore it to make it sound like a Italian, like a goblin, like a Dario Argento mm. thing. So that's <laughs> kind of fun. I, I rescored that for him, and then I did a Hellboy video game. So yeah, I did those two cartoons, and from that, um, that led me into. Uh, Bruce Tim had watched the Hellboy animated thing, and Bruce Tim is the producer and artist of Batman the Animated Series. Created that look, that square jawed Batman that we know. You know, that's all Bruce Tim and co creator of Harley Quinn. And I was a big Bruce Tim fan because, again, comic book nerd, and I know who Bruce Tim is. And I'll never forget then getting the phone call. Now, Warner Brothers is calling me, <laughs> and Susie Savita, who was the head of music at the time, said, Hey, Christopher, nice to meet you. Um, there's this guy that works here named, like, I didn't know who Bruce Tim was. There's this guy here that works here named Bruce Tim. He's kind of like a Batman guy. And anyways, we're doing like this Batman thing. Uh, and Bruce really liked your music and, and, uh, and was interested if you would be interested in submitting some music. And I, you know, I did that thing where I played it cool. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Totally. And I'm like, holy shit, Bruce Tim likes my music. Bruce Tim's calling to ask about me. Right. So I was doing the Snoopy happy dance, man. Like I got that thing. I'm like, like Bruce Tim, Bruce Tim knows who I am. He knows mm -hmm. who my music is. And it was an honor. I mean, you know, that my first thing, it was called Batman Gotham Nights. That was the first Batman thing I did. And, uh, and, you know, the thing that's interesting about my back, my Batman work, my career with Batman stuff is that, um, you know, you think of all the great Batman composers, um, you know, Shirley Walker, Danny Elfman, Hans Zimmer, et cetera. Um, they've all had the ability to have a singular story in continuity where there's the Danny Elfman Batman theme. And Danny Elfman's, of course, going to use that in the Batman sequel because that's his Batman theme. This is the on Zimmer Batman theme. Every Batman movie I've done is not in continuity. There's a different cast, a different guy is voicing Batman usually, different artwork, different stories. So I've always, I think, I may be unique in, in so far. I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that I might be the only composer in the history of, of Batman music that has to, that has come up with multiple different Batman themes hmm. that are both need to sound like Batman. It has to have that minor key mojo, that Wagnerian thing that makes a Batman thing. If you, if you don't understand music, you go, that's dark and brooding. That's Batman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also I can't be like, well, here's the Chris Drake Batman thing. You know, I, I have like the dark Knight returns theme is different from, you know, Batman Year One. It's different from the Gotham. Uh, what was the first one I did? Gotham, Gotham Knight. Yeah. So, so it's it's been a weird thing of like, I can't imagine them telling Dan, like Danny Elfman, like, "Hey, man, we love what you did." Da 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 da. That's that's just great. The next one, can you just throw that away and like totally reinvent the wheel and kind of make it sound like that, but not like that. It's got to sound like that, but not what you did before. So, um, yeah, it was pretty, I'm, I'm bringing, segueing into what's going on now. I just, I haven't written Batman music for my God, maybe like eight or eight or nine years. I, I took a break to kind of focus on live action stuff and, and films. And, uh, it's not like I, I want to say I ever retired, but I kind of, it was a conscious career choice to kind of step out of animation. And, um, a lot of times in this business you get, you're typecast, you know, it's like, oh, well, you're a cartoon guy. Well, well mm -hmm. you know, like, like I'll go after a live action thing. And they're like, oh, well, you know, they're not going to listen to my music. They're going to look at my IMDb and go, what's the last thing you did? Oh, a Batman cartoon. Oh, he writes cartoon music. Even though if you listen to the Batman score I last did, it sounds like a horror movie. It sounds yeah. like a radar. It doesn't, it's nothing cartoony about it, but I think there's still that stigma of, of something. So fortunately, um, uh, well, bring, bring it back to what I was going to say in terms of Batman themes. I just did, uh, I took a break from working on Batman. Then I did, I just recently did um, the sequel to Under the Red Hood, which is called The Death of the Family, Batman and Death of based on the comic book. And my long-winded point <laughs> is that <laughs> it's the first sequel I got to, like, use material I used before. It's my first... <laughs> 
like legit Batman sequel where I got to use themes that I wrote in, in Under the Red Hood in uh, Death of the Family. So out of my entire Batman career, that's the only time I got to like reuse themes and revisit stuff. So that was, that was pretty fun. Yeah. Is doing so many different versions kind of interesting in its, in its own way to like be recreating it a different way each time? Yeah. You know, it definitely, it definitely like each story has its own needs. Right. Um, For example, the dark Knight returns takes place in 1986 and so, you know, it's funny. I pitched the idea to Bruce at the Bruce Tim at the time. I said, he's like, well, what should we, what should we do for the score for this? Cause this is like the Bible. This is like the Holy grail in terms of, you know, Batman stories. <laughs> the dark it's one of the, the best known uh, and one of the best stories ever written for the character. What can we do to make this, you know, different? That doesn't just sound like orchestra minor chord Batman stuff. And so my pitch was, well, what if we scored this like in its period? What if the, what if we scored this like what if John Carpenter did a Batman movie in 1986? Because <laughs> they place in 1986, and my concept was um, let it be all analog synthesizer stuff. And when the Dark Knight returns, when we see Batman, it's all electronic music in the movie up until the first time you see Batman in the suit, like behind the lightning, and you hear the French horns for the first time. That's the first old it's like the classic hero the sound so i introduced it's just horns everything else is 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 synthesis is 80s analog synthesizers the horns in his like kind of his batman fanfare theme just for a moment and then as the story progresses the analog stuff crossfades it, it falls away to the more class the dark Knight returns the classical score starts to return the orchestra starts to return and at one point in the dark Knight returns there is an EMP bomb to set off, which turns off all electricity, basically, in the story. And I was like, well, just turned off all the synthesizers, too. And if you notice from that point forward, right. it's all strings and, and acoustic percussion, um, uh, acoustic orchestra. Uh, and so, so yeah, you know, to, to your point, each story has, each story, whether it's a Batman story or any story, I'm working on the second season of Creepshow right now, and it's fun because... Every it's an anthology, so there's no every story is its own score, its own little mini movie. There's no other than the kind of John John Harrison we call it the OG Creep Show sound, which is a Steinway piano and a Prophet Five. That's what John used on the original movie, and I try to honor that. Um, but it, the actual scores itself, there's no rules. Going back to what we were saying, there's no rules to anything. Just yeah. one score could be, you know, electronic synth music one score can be for creep show could be all orchestra one could be just weird sound let's not even like i did a, a score for one of the episodes called lydia lane and it's all piano but not playing piano in its traditional way opening the lid up and dragging strings and making like weird sounds and hitting things with hammers you know a piano with a hammer that's the score it's not you know so yeah man like every whether it's Batman doing different Batman stuff, it, it's cool because uh, they all have they all have their own unique need that you have to find to serve with the music. Yeah, and uh, although we we've talked about Batman a lot, I, I wanted to make sure to pass on to you uh, because I have the, the chance. Uh, so Batman Arkham Origins, the the game, I wanted to tell you. So that game it came at a time when I needed an escape. And it, it served that role so, it was so immersive and escapist. And I just wanted to tell you how special and how impactful that game was. Oh. Your music being a, a part of it. And, and as I've said before, I do listen to your music that, from that game still. And so I just wanted to tell you how special it was. And it really did help Thank me a you. lot. Yeah. Thanks, Henry. I really appreciate You know, it's, it's, it's really nice. It's really nice uh, because, you know, it's not a, being a, a film composer isn't a glamorous lifestyle. You think, you know, like you're out there and, you know, I'm talking to movie stars, you know, maybe, maybe at a premiere and you get like mm. cheap, like free drinks. Yeah. The most important <laughs> time you're locked in the, you're locked in the, in the, in the bunker with no lights and no windows and you're in here for 18 hours a day. And I don't, I don't really think about it. And then, you know, the stuff gets, the music gets, I try to write music that I think that I would like if I was a fan and again, to honor, you know, I'm, I've been very fortunate to work on franchises that of things that I love, like Creepshow and Batman. I've never had to do 
like a thing that I'm like, I'm just doing this for the money or like, you know, I don't really know what this is. Yeah. I'm, I'm usually, sometimes it comes with a risk of, because I carry so much of the weight, you know, it could be self-defeating sometimes where I, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, I'm like, I just got the baton pass from Shirley Walker. And like, you know, you can get up your own ass with that stuff with your mm -hmm. head and, and get like lost. And you just have to kind of let that go and just go, okay, forget about the legacy of this Batman. My God, 75 years in amazing music talent before me and just try to, try to do my thing that I think would satisfy me as a fan while also trying to honor that. And that and Ar Arkham origins really was, that was the directive from the team there where they were like, you know, we just kind of want this to be a celebration of all things Batman. So if you can kind of find a way to bring in Danny, if you can find a way to bring in Hans, what Hans is doing at the time and just filter that through yourself. And, you know, it's funny. Um, a lot of people, uh, you know, again, it's weird as a composer because again, we're not, I'm not, a, I'm not an actor. I'm not a, you know, like most people probably don't, you know, film, film music. There's, there's a lot of people that are fans of film music, but it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an artist or anything like that where I'm recognizable. But every once in a while, um, you know, I'll, I'll get an email uh, or somebody has sent a, a kind thing to me like you just did. I just got an email. I need to res respond to this guy. but. He sent me an email uh, through my agent saying that, you know, he was, he had some kind of spinal injury and was knocked out for like, you know, months and was in pain and listened to the Dark Knight Returns. That was like his mojo music for like going through PT and like getting wow. through it and doing the work. And, you know, my God, as an artist, there's nothing, there's nothing more satisfying than to get a compliment like you just gave me or hearing something like that where I'm just like, you know, I'm self-conscious with everything. We have, we get imposter sy syndrome and it's just like, is this, it, did I, this is my pro I think this is a lot of um, creative people's process, but this is my pro my mental process is usually like, this is exciting. It's like, I get the call. This is going to be great. This is exciting. The most exciting thing, Henry is signing your name on the contract. Yeah, this is where I can't wait to do the dark Knight returns followed by dude, you're doing the dark Knight returns. Dude, do you know what the Dark Knight Returns means to me, people? You better not drop the ball on this. You know, and then it's like, okay, this is hard. Then the writing process is like, this is hard. They start overthinking about it. And I'm like, this is shit. Then it turns into, I'm shit. Nobody's going to like this. I'm never going to work again. This is terrible. This is the worst thing I've ever done. And then, you know, you, you kind of work through it and you go, okay, it's not as shitty as I thought. Okay, it's okay. I slept on it. It's okay. I guess it's okay. I guess I guess it's okay. I mean, when I ended ended um, the Dark Knight Returns, I wrote that main title. And I was like, I get. I don't know. I think so. I think that's it. I remember being on the stage while we were mixing it, and Bruce looked at, at it. And he's like, "Dude, that's great." I was like, "Yeah, okay." Yeah. <laughs> so I never have. I I never have a like. You know, I, I press stop on the record button and go, "Oh yeah, hell yeah, I fucking did it." Like that never happens. <laughs> right. that never so thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for that compliment. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, I did want to ask you briefly, briefly because I don't want to keep you too long, but I did want to ask about your work with Kevin Smith recently. Yeah. What is, what has that been like? Cause of course you did, uh, you know, have a, you know, kind of, uh, teaser with Kevin Smith or a possibility, you know, early on. And so right. I just wanted to ask about, so the, here's, here's that symmetry thing. We should probably just put like markers like if you want a fast word to Chris Drake Ramley, <laughs> go to like one thirty five. He talks about competition. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what happens when I drink coffee before an interview. Uh, so, so again, the symmetry of my life. Here I am. I told you I met Greg Nicotero in two thousand two on in the front yard of Bob Burns doing this Halloween show, and then almost twenty years later, I'm doing Creep Show with Greg. He was the executive producer, and you know, when he's not doing Walking Dead, Creepshow's his baby. And I had pitched for Clerks the Animated Series and lost it to my good friend Jim Venable, mm -hmm. who ended up working with Kevin. And then uh, Kevin heard The Dark Knight Returns, and because he was a huge Batman fan, and we had a um, at the Pally Center here in, uh, in, in Beverly Hills, it's, this t it's the, like a television academy. And they have, uh, they had uh, like a, they had a premiere of it or something, or it was like a, uh, 
it was a, a screening of the Dark Knight Returns, and, and the cast was Peter Weller was there, and I was there, and um, the director's Bruce Tim was there, and Kevin Smith moderated it. And that's the first time I met Kevin. Kevin was like, dude, did you do, you did the Dark Knight Returns? And he was just like, it's, it's my favorite thing. I'm obsessed with the score. I'm obsessed with the story. And then he invited me on. He had a podcast from his house called Fat Man on Batman. He's still doing it with Mark Bernandin. Oh, yeah. uh, and, uh, but at the time, he was just doing it out of his house. So I drove up to Kevin's place and, Kevin got super baked as Kevin does. And uh, I'm kind of a lightweight with that shit. So if you listen to that, if you listen to that uh, also very long winded uh, podcast interview with Chris Drake, uh, the difference is I'm, I'm getting stoned by the end of it. So that's, so it gets, it gets a little off the rails there because Kevin's not because I'm smoking. I'm just in proximity to, to the great Kevin Smith. That's what happens. But Kevin loved the music uh, for the dark Knight returns. And then, he, uh, I got a call, uh, that he was doing this movie called Tusk. And my first thing was like, why are you using Jim Venable? Like my friend, you know, who worked, who, who worked with Kevin, who, who did clerks and, you know, Kevin was just like, and I, I, I had kind of a moral quandary because I felt like it's all about relationships, this business, you know? And like Jim was, is, had worked with Kevin and, you know, I called up Jim and I was like, dude, I, I, Kevin just asked me to do this movie, but I feel weird about it because I know you, you have this relationship with him. And Jim is the kind of guy where he's he's like a Zen master and just one of the most lovely uh, supporting friends. And, you know, he just, without even blinking, he was just like, hey, dude, go with God. That's just the creative process. Sometimes you want to go in a new direction. It's not like, it's not like you know, I'm bummed out that, you know, uh, Kevin wanted to use you. He wanted to use you for a reason because you're talented. And he's like, I do my thing and you do your thing. He said, this is a horror movie. I don't really do horror movies, you know? And uh, so I felt better about it. And then, you know, started working with Kevin, but that was such a cool, that was my first feature film. And uh, it was just a real honor to be part of it. And uh, uh, working with Kevin, Kevin is just, I, it's the most fun, you know, work, working with him. He, he is, what you see is what you get. That's Kevin. Yeah. You, that's, that's just, just hanging out with him. And he's really easygoing. He gives really thoughtful direction, but he lets you do your own thing too. He's like, he's like, Drake, you're the, you're the expert here. Just do your shit and I'll see you on the other side. And you know, if he, if there's anything, it's usually a small tweak or something like that. But Kevin, yeah, it's, it, it's just an absolute blast work, working with Kevin. Yeah. Well, Christopher, I, I, I love talking to you, and I, I know that there are a million things we could we could talk about still. But is there anything in in particular that I, I haven't brought up that uh, is worth mentioning? Or and it's okay if not. I, I just don't want to leave anything unsaid. I know we can uh, no, go on yeah, and on, I think, but I think I think I probably have gone on and on a little bit too long here. Uh, oh, I no. think you covered it, Henry. I you know the only thing if I'm doing the let's see what's coming up. Uh, season two. Oh, the creep show. There's an, uh, a holiday. There's a Christmas episode werewolves versus Santa Claus. Oh, cool. The creep show. That was kind of fun. I got to tap into some old school, um, Wolfman music from the forties, uh, with that. So that's, that's a fun episode. I think that's coming out on the, it's going to be on shutter December 11th. I think, uh, I don't know. I'm sure it's on, on, on the internet somewhere, but that's coming up. (laughs) I got to getting back to my horror nerd stuff. I um, Warner Brothers has restored Curse of Frankenstein from, which is a Hammer horror film with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, and a good friend of mine, Constantine Nasir, who uh, produces all the the documentaries and the commentary for that, the restoration. He invited me to talk about the great James Bernard, who was the composer for those uh, classic Hammer horror films. Right. So, um, so I've got a little fifteen minute thing on there where I, where I, I we deep dive into the, the career of uh, James Bernard. Um, that's kind of cool. Uh, Batman death and the family's out. We talked about that. Um, Oh, I've got two, I've got, um, I did a movie with Neil Marshall, uh, who did the descent. Yeah, it's called yeah. the reckoning. It's about, um, a woman, uh, tr- it's like a witch trial thing. She's, she's arrested uh, for, for being a witch. And it's a story about her, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because when I started the film, 
it takes place during the Great Plague, the the Black Plague in England in the the 1600s. Yeah. And at the time, and there's like people wearing the full on like you know the 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 plague doctor masks. Oh yeah, yeah. And stuff. So a lot, a lot of those guys in there. And at the time, right as the middle of doing that, this shit hits. This COVID nineteen thing mm-hmm. happens. We end up having to be in an actual. Or we were art, you know, it's like art imitates life, life imitates art. So that was kind of surreal to be writing music based in a plague in the, you know, the 15th century or whatever it was. And then it's like, oh, we're kind of dealing with that now. So I have that. I have a movie I did for uh, Blumhouse called The Manor. That's part of their uh, Welcome to the Blumhouse series. I think that's going to be an Amazon. But that's, I think The Reckoning, which is the Neil Marshall thing and the... uh, the Blumhouse thing are both coming out in like around February or spring or something like that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I mean, Christopher, I, again, I mean, I, I had a blast talking to you. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. Please come back, you know, whenever you <laughs> My like. My pleasure. And, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, just best of luck with everything coming up. Uh, I hope to talk to you again sometime soon and just take care. Okay. You bet. Thank you, brother. You too. Cheers. Yeah. All right, everybody. We, uh, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and we'll see you next time. 